0: good morning so glad you're with us today scoot this up here uh, I don't know what's going on with our lights are wigging out a little bit <laughs> but uh that's all right it's so good to be in here I'm glad to see you thank you for being with us got some new folks with us and some folks we had not seen in a while so thank you for hanging with us today I want to do something that we wouldn't normally do but just go with me I think you'll know what to do all right Christ is risen You got it. Now, let's try it one more time. Christ is risen. risen. Amen. Normally, we wouldn't do that in November, right? But the reality is, is every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, right? Every single one, not just Easter Sunday, but this Sunday and every single one. This is why we gather on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, to celebrate a, a risen Savior, And it's no small thing that a a large group of Jews following Jesus changed their worship schedule that they had been worshiping on for almost 2,000 years to begin to worship on a Sunday to celebrate the risen Lord. It's no small thing. It signifies that the old covenant was fulfilled in the death of Christ and that we live in joy in the new covenant of our forgiveness in his blood. Amen? Amen? It helps his followers to remember that, that it's Sunday morning, it's Sunday morning that Jesus got out of that grave, that he, that the Lord God Almighty, is greater than death itself. So we, we gather today grateful as believers, as followers of Jesus, not only to remember what we've been talking about so much in the last few weeks, which is the passion and the cross of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus, right? Right? That is the the whole gospel. And and we're going to talk about why it's so significant today. Last Sunday, we were in our city groups. We have groups that meet all over our city, and and we have this schedule for those of you that don't know. We meet one Sunday in in homes, and we meet one Sunday on our campus. And we do that for intentional reasons. We want to be together in relationships, close relationships, as the church. We want to walk as the church together in real relationships do the one another's of scripture that you can't do in a big building with a bunch of people, right? And we also want to gather together as a big group, as they did in the temple, and lift up the name of Jesus and, and grow. And, and this is just a, the Sunday we get to celebrate together. But last Sunday, we were in our city groups, and we were focused on this passage at the end of chapter 15 of Mark. And the story is about the silence that they had to feel. They had to just go there in your heart for just a minute. Following Jesus, John says in the, at the very end of the book of John that, that if every miracle had been written down that he did, it wouldn't fit in, in all the books in all the world. So just imagine they've been with Jesus for three years, and now he's gone. And that Saturday, that, that Sabbath, which is ironically the day that the Lord gave us for rest, right? and, and this, this moment of just silence, Without the Savior. That is the attitude that we see coming into the story even this morning. That's where we enter. The grip, the, the sting, if you will, of death still on his most faithful followers. And that's where we come into our story. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 16, verse 1. We're going to look at the first eight verses first, okay? It says this. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Can we start this morning just by going to the Father and praying? Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for your truth. God, thank you for the privilege to come together as a family of families, where we seek you, where we look into your word, where we ask you, Lord, to open it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would lead us to all truth, Jesus, God, I'm so grateful for the story and and the gospel of Mark and all that we've studied over this last year. And yet today, Lord, is the climax of that story. Today it, it wraps up in such a beautiful and wonderful way. And God, I pray that you would please open our minds and our hearts to all that you've taught us. And yet all that you expect of us to do with this story. To do in our lives. How to love you. How to follow you. How to serve you. So, God, I pray with all my heart, Lord, that you would increase in this place, that you'd help me to decrease, God, and that you would help us, Father, to have the courage to be obedient to whatever you call us to, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So I'm seeing there's uh, four different kind of groupings of people this morning in our story. And the first group I'm calling the faithful because, man, are they faithful, right? These first four verses talk about these ladies. We talked about them last time we were together. They're so consistent, this large group of ladies, so consistent, so constant. They're they're always there. They follow Jesus. It said a couple of weeks ago when we read it. They follow Jesus to Jerusalem. And we said this a couple of weeks ago. Where, Where are the disciples? John is there at the cross. But where are the disciples? They've scattered. They've gone, but... These faithful group of women are there, and they're they're willing to serve and mourn in the mess and the horror of the cross. Uh, We see that Jesus dies on Friday, Good Friday. He dies before 6 p.m., okay? And so Jesus dies, and then Saturday we see is the Sabbath, uh, and it hit his past completely, probably the longest day ever in his disciples' life, right? And now it's the sunrise of Sunday. Now, sometimes it gets confusing when you start thinking, no, wait, I thought Jesus was in the tomb. He was there for three days. We start thinking about how we count time, right? These 24-hour period, this cycle from midnight to to midnight, it's like that's not how first-century Jews counted time. And so we have to take a look at this. Sometimes you do the math and go, well, that's not three days. Friday to Sunday, that's not three days, right? Well, it is if you were a first century Jew and you realize that, that on Friday before 6 p.m., Jesus died, was, was dead. From 6 p.m., that counts as part of Friday, and then into Saturday, part of Saturday, and then into Sunday, part of Sunday. That is three days that Jesus was dead. And so he fulfills all of that prophecy. Uh, and hopefully that gives some clarity on some of that. But we see Mary Magdalene, she's the first character at the tomb. We see Mary, who is the mother of James, uh, the lesser, and uh, also the mother of this, this sibling, Josie's, right? And then we also see uh, Salome. And that is, if you don't know, that is the mother of the Sons of Thunder, James and John. Okay? So you just get this picture, and, and of course, women had babies a lot younger then. And, and, and they've just connected as this group of women, Mary Magdalene. And other Mary and Salome, they're just together. We see them in these different places at the cross. Now it's uh, two days later. It's now on Sunday, and it is, they're at the tomb together. They're doing this all together. And so they're just connected. So we see them at the cross. We, we, we learned last time we were together that two of them uh, saw where Jesus had been placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. They were watching when, when they placed Jesus in that tomb. Uh, and then we see these same three ladies come, and they're going to anoint his body. Now, I don't know if they, they watched to see where Jesus was laid just long enough to see, okay, that's, that's the spot. And then they left and didn't see that, you know, another gospel tells us Nicodemus comes and brings 100 pounds of spices to anoint his body with Joseph of Arimathea. So he had been anointed, and maybe they didn't see that, or maybe they're adding to that anointment. I don't know. Of course, they didn't do embalming and all the things that, that our culture has done over these years. They brought these, these spices to cover the stench of death. And so they, they've brought all of their uh, spices, 75 more pounds, to anoint the body of Jesus. And so uh, they didn't come on the Sabbath. The, the Jewish law wouldn't allow them to do such a thing. And so as soon as they could, as soon as it is, it is daybreak, as soon as the sun is breaking on Sunday, they're on their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, I love the fact that the story says they didn't think about a huge stone that they couldn't move out of the way. You see that? <laughs> I love that. They're, they're already on their way. They've already got their, their provisions. They're going, they're like, I wonder who's gonna roll that stone away. I don't know, but we're gonna do this. I mean, it's like, that, is that faith or what? They're going. They know that this, this, however it's gonna happen, they're gonna go, they're gonna anoint the body of Jesus and hopefully somebody's gonna roll the stone away. They had that faith to go anyway. You know, I can't help but think about this story and these faithful women and think about that faithful woman and all of you faithful moms because, and I think about my kids, right? i got two little girls, and when they were especially little, kids do some gross stuff. Okay, can I say that? There are things that kids do that are really gross. And um, I don't know if, if other dads are like me, but moms, you have like this ability to withstand gross stuff more than we do and now I've done my share I didn't always opt out but on occasion I did opt out of gross stuff and moms just always just seem to go I got this we're taking care of this we're gonna get this done I just had that image of these amazing women who are like around the, the the horror of the cross around the the difficulty of anointing the dead body of their savior of their master of their teacher and yet we're the disciples and they're like, we got this. We're gonna do this. This such unbelievable faithfulness in this group of women. Well, they go from being the faithful group to the frightened group, and, and rightly so. Look in the text in verse five and four. Verse four says, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Thank the Lord, right? And it was very large. And verse 5 says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So they get close enough to the tomb, probably still looking around. Who's going to help us with this stone, right? And they get close enough to be able to see the tomb where Jesus is laid in the, in the stone is gone. It's already rolled away. They go into the tomb and they see this young man, right? It's an appearance of a young man who's sitting there dressed in a nice white robe. Now what's interesting is all throughout scripture there are different descriptions of angels. Sometimes people see angels and they die because they're so terrifying. Sometimes uh, like in this story in another gospel, we're going to see what happens, but these, these guards who are guarding, they fall over as if they're dead. But in this moment, these ladies don't fall over dead. He takes on a, a kinder, more gentle appearance for these ladies. And yet he says, don't be alarmed. Right, like, right, sure, we're not going to be alarmed with the angel that's sitting here and Jesus is gone. But he tells them, don't be alarmed. And he's probably in this appearance to not overly frighten these ladies, but frightened they were, no question. Matthew gives us a description of the angels when this angel evidently came down before they got there. Matthew 28, verse 2 says this. And behold, there was a great earthquake. That's a little different. For an angel of the Lord descended. Now, you just, i just picture this out uh, in a very cinematic way in my mind. But the, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that. His appearance was like Lightning. And his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Can you picture it in your mind? I mean, you know, Hollywood has helped us uh, in our minds imagine such grand, crazy events like this one. An earthquake happens, an angel comes down, and I love the fact that he just throws a stone away and then sits on it and probably goes, hey guys. You know? And they're like, uh, poof, you know, they just fall out like they're dead. They're not dead. It says they're like dead men. So I don't know. Are they fainted? Are they uh, unconscious? Obviously, they're unconscious. They're just, I don't know what's happened to these guys. But it says his appearance was like lightning. His clothing, white as snow, but appearance like lightning. If you've ever seen lightning, it's a shocking moment. And it's something you can hardly look at. So clearly, the angel has changed his appearance From what he showed the guards to what he shows these ladies, he gives them a much softer introduction, but he tells them to not be alarmed. And yet still, Mark says they're alarmed. Now what's interesting, this word alarmed is an interesting word because it's the same word that Mark uses in the gospel when he's explaining the stressed nature of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Same word. Now what happens to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember, he sweats drops of blood Unbelievable stress, unbelievable weight on his shoulders. He was, he was weighted down with so much. This is the same description in Mark in the Greek. And so they are stressed out. Or if you were to use a, a common vernacular, it might say they were freaked out. They, were, they didn't know what to do. They, they were just shocked. They were, they were just like that. <laughs> I, I, I can't speak. I can't move. I don't know what to do. I'm gripped. By fear. And the angel says some really interesting things that are, If that are, you miss it if you don't pay attention. He says, hey, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, right? Let's be very clear what he says. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. So those three things are very specific to Jesus. Make no mistake of who he's describing here. There's a reason for this, right? Not only for them, but also for us, and also for these different generations that have come after the resurrection of Jesus to make no question who we're talking about because I'll show you later, there's some different theories about Jesus not rising from the grave. And the very first thing we see is, is is this angel saying, no, this is Jesus of Nazareth who was just crucified. That's who you're looking for. He is risen. I like the way John MacArthur says, that there's three testimonies in this story. The first one is an empty tomb, right? The, the tomb itself says, he's not here. and it, I believe it's the garden tomb in Jerusalem, I've been there, guess what, he's not there. It's empty, you, you have to walk in, you have to stoop to get in, and, you, and it's, it's hand-hewn, which scripture says it will be, out of stone. And there's two places where two bodies could lay. And on the right, it says that the angel was dressed in white. The tomb itself is a testimony, an actual place that you can go to. How many other religion leaders or or people that call certain others gods, they still lay in those tombs but not our Savior, right? He's resurrected. He's not there. The tomb itself is a testimony. Then the heavenly host, the angel, the supernatural character says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you're seeking, the one who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. So there's a second testimony and then, of course, these women and others are going to be eyewitnesses, the third testimony of Jesus' resurrection. Then he says, see the place where they've laid him, where, where, where they laid him. In other words, I'm going to move out of the way. Look for yourself. It's right here. This is where they laid him. He's not here, right? Be very clear, Jesus is gone. Make sure you understand what's happened here, he's saying Make sure you understand the significance of this moment. Even in your shock, get over the fact that I'm an angel. Get over over that fact and realize Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He is not here. He is risen, right? So they go from being the faithful to the frightened, and then the angel gives them this assignment and this mission and sends them to what I'm calling the fearful. Here's the disciples. Here they are. They had scattered... And now all of a sudden, uh, the angel says to go find. Him. Look, look what he says. Very interesting. Verse seven. But go tell his disciples and Peter. I think that reads interestingly. That he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So the angel makes it very clear that Jesus is alive. But he wants them to tell the rest of the crew, the rest of the disciples, the rest of the people who are following Jesus, he's alive. Go tell them, right? Go right now and, and, and get out of here and go tell them. But he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. When I first looked at that, I thought, oh, boy, Peter has messed up this time. Right? I mean, you look at it and it kind of seems like now Peter's outside of the group. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter. That's the way I first read it. And so I was like, oh man, this is not, this is not good for Peter. Right? It's probably exactly what Peter felt. Right? I don't deserve to be in this group of guys. I don't deserve to even be hanging out in this room. I know they feel that way. I surely feel that way. And, and now the angel's saying something similar to maybe what he's already feeling. Go tell the disciples and Peter What has happened, but can I tell you something, that's not the case. You look at it first and it might seem that way, but that's not what is happening here. What we see here, as I I looked at it deeper, is the most beautiful picture of grace. The most beautiful picture of mercy that the angel wants the faithful ones to go go tell the fearful ones that he's alive, Right? He wants to send this this message of forgiveness and invitation. I want you to hear me today. Listen, no matter how far you've walked from God, no matter what mistakes you've made, he loves you. He wants you. It's not too far. And that is good news of the gospel today. God wants them to know. He wants you to know, he wants me to know that even after what we've done, what what they have done, after abandoning the Savior, which he told them they would, right? He said, you're going to scatter. The sheep are going to be scattered. After Peter has denied Christ three times, which he told him he would. After Peter has cursed Christ and cursed himself, God, our loving Father, sends this message through the angel. You are still loved. Isn't that good? You are still forgiven. You are still wanted. I still want to use you. Make sure you go tell the disciples who left, but don't leave out Peter. See the difference? (laughs) Don't leave out Peter. Peter, I know what he's feeling. I know how low he feels. He's not excluded from from the group. I know I'm making a point to make sure that he knows, even though he feels excluded, he's not. As low as he is, after all that he's done. Make sure you tell them that Jesus is alive. Jesus had told them uh, in Mark 14, verse 28, and it's right around the time that he's telling Peter that he's going to deny him, Jesus says, "Uh, I'm going to rise again, and then I'm going to go to Galilee. So he'd already told them, I'm going to go to Galilee. But guess what? They had forgotten not only that Jesus was going to rise again in three days, they'd forgotten that. But trust me, if they'd forgotten that, they also forgot he would meet them in Galilee, right? So the angel says, go tell them Jesus wants to meet you in Galilee. They had forgotten. So the ladies flee from the tomb. And look at all these descriptors. They, they flee. They're running. They're trembling in astonishment. They're seized in fear, saying nothing to anyone. When I thought of this, I thought of a few moments in my life where I've been seized with fear. You've been seized with fear? Maybe it was right before a wreck. Maybe it was some tragic moment in your life. I'll never forget. When I was in the eighth grade, I had just finished the eighth grade, and I was not a smart person. I mean, can we just establish that fact out there? Still not very smart. But after the eighth grade, I decided, me and some buddies decided we were going to burn our books from from history class. Made sense at the time. And uh, we couldn't do it down by the lake where uh, my friend lived, but because it was raining. So, well. There's a neighbor's house that has a stoop, and it's, the rain's not falling there. We'll just burn them on the front of this neighbor's porch. That, for some reason, made sense at the moment. And so we go and light up three or four books in front of this, this lady's house on the porch, and not with any arson-like plans. We just wanted to burn books, and we were just dumb. I mean, it was just that simple. And we're hiding around the corner, and thank the Lord, a police officer— God sends a police officer around the corner who lived next door to the lady where the books were burning, gets out of his trooper out of his vehicle, runs over, takes the water hose puts out, puts out the the fire and no kidding, in the same cinematic kind of way he the fire is out, and he goes he looks over at us, and we're all like heads up and down the row, you know like out like this, and that feeling of fear hit me like uh, like we couldn't move we're like uh. We couldn't get back fast enough, right? It was we were so stupid, but I remember in that moment going, "We're we're done. We're finished. We're going to prison. It's a death penalty. They're going to kill us for this." And only by God's grace, we did not die, or go to prison. For some reason, <laughs> we sure could have. Um, but I just remember that gripping fear, and these women are fleeing from the tomb with a gripping fear. They don't say anything to anyone, they're just gonna be obedient to what the angel said to go do, and they run to find the other disciples. Now I want us to just kinda of push pause for a second, and let's look at some historical aspects of this book, okay? Look with me again at, the, at verse eight. I wanna read it. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing For they were afraid, friends. That is the last verse of the book of Mark. You're going, no, it didn't. I got another 12 verses right here. Well, actually, it is. That is the last verse most theologians believe of the inspired gospel of Mark. But what happened is some early church fathers in the second and third century, somewhere around the second to third century, didn't think Mark did a very good job of wrapping up things. And so between the 2nd and 3rd century, they had already had the rest of the other Gospels to look at. They had the book of Acts to look at. And they started going, there's other things here that would really be good. The other Gospels have them. And so they kind of add to the Gospel of Mark, verses 9 through 20. So in essence, that verse finishes the Gospel of Mark. But there's in church history, and the reason it's in our Bibles, is that it's part of church history. and, And there's different mixed opinions on this. Some early church fathers know nothing of verses 9 to 20. Some early church fathers do. So we're going to be faithful to go ahead and and read it and and, and study it. We're going to go to 14 today. And then in, in two weeks from today, we're going to finish out 15 to 20 and finish out the book of Mark. But I wanted you to know there's a reason you may have those double brackets or brackets in your Bible around verses 9 to 20. Okay, the reason we're going to do this is because there's nothing in here that's, that's not, uh, um, it's not unscriptural to go ahead and follow these verses. They're following other texts of scripture, uh, and I believe they're good reminders of things that we need to be as believers. We want to be faithful to finish up this book. Well, it's only one more message, right? You, can you hang in there for one more? I mean, it's been a year, right? So what's one more Sunday? We can do it. Um, But I'm going to address some really interesting points in the rest of the text I'm going to address. But let's finish up to verse 14 today, if we can. There's one main theme in these verses. Verses 9 to 14 say this. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, you can even hear, feel, it just sounds like a a different writer, right? Now when uh, he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons, she went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Verse 12. After these things, uh, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in, uh, into the country. Probably the road to Emmaus, if you're wondering. Verse 13. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So this last group of people I'm calling the faithless, these disciples. They wouldn't believe. They just, in their minds, they, they, they couldn't believe that Jesus was risen. It, just, it didn't make sense in their minds. Surely Mary Magdalene wouldn't be the first person he would show, right? Surely not these other disciples that are not the main disciples he wouldn't show, right? We just wouldn't believe. So Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to these two other disciples. The text says, and it says that, that they had gotten to this condition, and it kind of gives some descriptors of their condition. It said they had completely forgotten that Jesus had promised to rise again. They were just mourning, they're weeping, they're full of unbelief and hardness of heart. They had forgotten the promise of God. Can I tell you something? When you forget the promises of God, often what will follow in my life and in your life is mourning. And weeping, right? Unbelief, hardness of heart. When we forget and we, we place our circumstance or our, our situation or what we're walking through that is so devastating above the truth of God's word and his promise, all of a sudden this will be our condition. The text says Jesus rebuked them for it. How often do we know what God has said. (laughs) We know it. We remember it. We don't believe it. We've heard it. We've grown up with it. We've seen it. We don't believe it. We don't walk in it. We don't trust it. My favorite perspective of this story in the parallel gospel is from Luke. Luke 24, verses 10 through 12 gives us a little bit more context. Let's look at it. It says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman, Salome, with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Right? So there's context for what was written in the end of Mark. And they did not believe them. Watch this. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And when we know Peter's story, we know how far he's fallen. We know the guilt and the shame that has to be riddling his heart. He's probably even sitting in another part of the room. And the lady says, well, the angel said to come and tell the disciples and Peter, What? Can you feel? He mentioned my name? Me? After You guys know what I did. He mentioned me? And Peter gets up. He doesn't go, who wants to come with me to the tomb to see who? That that doesn't happen. Peter gets up, runs to the tomb to see for himself. Now, what I love about the parallel Gospels is John also tells this story. John's probably a little younger, and John's added comment is that I beat him to the tomb. Isn't that just like a guy? I beat Peter to the tomb, and then, but I didn't go in. I didn't look in. I waited, and when Peter got there, Peter goes in first. Peter goes in, and he sees that Jesus, in fact, he is not there. And then John says, and then I went in. And he says something so interesting. John says in his gospel, it wasn't until we saw an empty tomb that we remembered and understood what Jesus said when he said he was going to rise again. It wasn't until our eyes saw, he's not here. Oh, wait a minute. He said he was going to rise again. Amazing. You know, sometimes we read, sometimes we read these stories and you go, oh, that, that, that contradicts the other one. No, they don't contradict one another. They just give us different perspectives. They add context. They add elements of the story. They give us a, a more full picture of what's going on. The Gospel of Luke tells us that it's Jesus in his resurrected body. And I so wish I was a fly on the wall, Lawrence, in this moment. But Jesus in his resurrected body... Sits with these disciples and he explains to them and helps them understand the whole meta narrative of scripture. That's a phrase, meta narrative of scripture, that's a phrase we use a lot, but it just means the story of God from beginning to end. So Jesus is going to say, Guys, let's talk about the Bible, the Old Testament, all the way to now, right? What becomes the New Testament. Look, Luke 24 44 it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you, you, in case you guys forgot, right, in essence. These are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what's Jesus saying right there? I am Messiah of Scripture. In case there was any doubt (laughs) after me dying and rising again, let me just make this clear. Can we make this clear? Everybody got that? Y'all, sometimes I need that kind of clarity. What about you? Sometimes I need the Lord to go, do you finally get this? And I'm going, yes, I got it. I'm ready. And you'll see why they needed to know it beyond the shadow of a doubt in just a moment. It says, about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that they must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, hallelujah, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What do we do with this text? So you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to finish up, we're going to wrap up today in just a minute the same way we started. Grateful for the resurrection of Jesus. He is risen, right? He's risen indeed, but can I tell you something? If Jesus is not risen, we're in trouble. If Jesus didn't get out of the tomb, we've got a massive problem here. All of you, we're all faking it if that's the case. None of our sins are forgiven. None of us will go to heaven. There is nothing left beyond this miserable life if Jesus isn't risen, right? That's what Paul says. Look with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. He says to the Corinthian church, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no, no resurrection from the dead? For if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And when we apostles... Would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. And that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. What a horrifying thought. Sit in that for a moment. Please. And in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Can you hear the tone in Paul's voice? Oh, but it changes. In verse 20, right? But in fact... You notice Paul didn't say, but in my opinion. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise God. That we gather on this Sunday because Jesus is alive. Now there's a lot of people from all the way from that first century to today that say Jesus is was not raised that's impossible it can't happen and they give all these theories right let me just mention a few we have some people who've come to Christ from the Jehovah's Witness uh, religion and Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus might have been crucified bodily but but if he came back it was only in spirit right that's heresy that's not the truth because Jesus said touch touch my hands Put your hands where the holes in my uh, my hands are, in my feet. Put your hand, he says, literally, put your hand in my side. Ah. How do you do that to a spirit? Right? Jesus also said one time, which I love, you'll love this, Kevin. He shows the disciples and says, you guys got any fish? Right? And then we see Jesus cooking on the beach and they eat fish together. Spirits don't eat. Jesus was body. There's, there's a, a theory called the swoon theory that says, well, Jesus must have not fully died. He swooned, he, he faked it, and then while he was in the tomb, he, he gathered himself. You don't get stabbed in the heart with a spear and swoon and pull it together later, right? That's not what happened. There's a theory around hypnosis that says Jesus hypnotized his disciples and, to believe that he was dead and, and, and rose again. Silliness. Silliness. There's there's a theory that says it was the wrong tomb the disciples came to and when he wasn't there they're like he must be resurrected, stupid. There's there's a theory that says Jesus has a twin. And that Jesus was crucified and then his twin shows up after uh, no no, and even from the first century they were saying well his disciples must have stolen his body. In fact it says in the word that they paid money to the to the Roman soldiers to say this to spread this lie that the disciples stole his body. Can I tell you something? The disciples were a bunch of idiots that didn't have it together enough to come up with a worldwide 2,000-year-old scheme that's still believed today. I'm just being honest. Where were the disciples? Were they, get, were they working to put this scheme together? No, they were scattered, fearful. They didn't have enough wherewithal to come up with such a scheme. They didn't do that. They didn't make that happen. In fact, they were nowhere to be found. Here's another apologetic for why Jesus did rise from the grave. Women were not considered uh, uh, worthy in that time period as eyewitnesses in court. So if you're going to put together a scheme, the last person you're going to say, go, you go and say that he's risen first is a bunch of women. It doesn't make sense. You wouldn't lie so poorly, right? And that's one of the apologetics of the fact that he did rise from the grave. These, this group of women finds the fact that he's, he's risen. There's an empty tomb, the radical life change of Saul who becomes Paul. I love that story, right? On the road to Damascus in Acts 9, the guy who's killing Christians, Jesus appears, changes his life, and literally from that week forward, He's persecuted, he's stoned, he's beaten, he's whipped three times with a cat and nine tails, he's shipwrecked, and ultimately his head is cut off for a lie? No. Why would he lie? He gives his life for Christ because he knew he was real. He knew he had been raised from the dead. Jesus' own brother, James, the Gospels tell us that, that James thought Jesus was crazy his whole family at times thought he was crazy and with Jesus he would be preaching and there's a, there's a, a scripture that says the family came to gather him and take him because Jesus is talking nonsense Paul says in Corinthians that after Jesus is resurrected he appears to James his brother James couldn't deny that his brother was the Messiah at that point right James then becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem, ultimately gives his life for the truth, for the fact that Jesus was risen. The sacrificial system of, of the Judaism ended because Jesus was the lamb slain once and for all. Right? So many things. The, the, the story, the testimony of martyrs, all the way to today, there are people who are dying today for the cause of Christ they don't die for a lie. Those apostles who died in horrible horrific ways and Peter himself the same one that denied Christ and cursed Christ when it came time for his crucifixion church history tells us he said you can't don't don't put me on a normal cross. Do something else. I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. And he wouldn't have done such a thing for a lie. Friends, here's here's how we'll close. The reality is we all fit into these categories. Every single one of us, whether you're faithful or frightened or fearful or faithless, the good news this morning is Jesus is risen, but it all comes down to what you believe. What do you believe? Do you believe that Christ is risen? Christ is risen indeed, because if you do, it has to change everything about your life. C.S. Lewis said Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. And friends, listen, in the same tone of Paul, if he's a liar or if he's a lunatic, (laughs) we're in trouble. But in fact, he's Lord of all the universe, right? King of kings and Lord of lords. Over life and death itself, he is Lord. But does your life reflect the fact that Jesus is alive? And I want to just encourage you because for those of us that believe Jesus is alive, listen, there there will be moments of mourning. Mm, I think about that Saturday, that day of Sabbath and Jesus is gone. There will be moments of mourning, but you know what? The Bible tells us in Thessalonians, we do not mourn. We do not grieve as those who have no hope, right? There will be sadness at times in our lives, but the Bible tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And the world is so full of unbelief and evil. But for those of us who know Jesus is alive, for those of us that celebrate this Sunday, first day of the week, and we say, Jesus, you are risen. We can say, my hope is built. nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Friends, the fact is that Jesus is alive. It ought to change everything about your life. It ought to give you hope where it seems like there should be no hope. It ought to give you joy in moments where it doesn't make sense to have joy. But we do. It's not just because it's a beautiful day, right? It's not just because we've had a wonderful meal or we have good friends. No, Jesus is alive and it changes everything. He is our hope. This is not the end. Not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? That gives us hope. Have you seen him? Just for a moment. Our team's gonna come in just a minute. But for a moment, can I just ask anybody, everybody listening, do you know this Christ? Do you know this Savior who is risen, who loves you more than you can comprehend, who died on a cross and rose from a grave for you and for me, do you know him? Or maybe you've just been missing for a while. Maybe you've just kinda taken a step back. Maybe like those disciples and like me, You forget some things, and you don't remember stuff that matters, and you need to be reminded in the same way the angel told those ladies, go remind the disciples and Peter, go tell them Jesus is alive, and how that must feel to hearts who have fallen away. Everybody look here just for a moment. Has your heart fallen away? Do you need to be reminded that it, you're not too far? You've not gone far enough that you can't come back to Jesus. You've not made enough mistakes or, or, or fallen too far from the love of Christ. Oh, I'm so glad because I'm, I have been a dumb disciple. And oh, the grace of God it changes everything. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Friends, I pray that this truth changes everything about who you are, who we are as a church, how we live, how we tell the world about his grace and his goodness. You know, I pray that everyone is welcome in this church. And I pray that we are faithful to God's word, to love them to truth. And to love them to life in Jesus. In a couple of weeks, we're going to finish up the book. And it's going to be about the mission of God. What is he calling us to? Where do we go from here? To the world. To your neighbor. To your family. Isn't it good to know that he can use people who fall away? People who make mistakes. People who don't have it all figured out. Praise God, praise God, pray with me. Father, how good you are, how kind you are. Lord, we love you. God, we we can't make up a story. That's what I love about this story. You you can't make this up in such a way that it would, would be as amazing Lord, in, in your wisdom and your sovereignty, you allowed all these things to, to take place and to come to pass pass according to your will in such a way that we don't just make this up. God, in your kindness and your mercy, you allowed your only son to die for us. Lord, may his resurrection change the world through us. Change us so significantly, Lord that we can never live the same. Lord, move us out of just a service, out of just tradition, out of just a gathering into life itself, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where you are Lord of all that we are and that your grace and mercy and power of your resurrection motivates us even to die if we need to, God. Even to die if we need to, Jesus, that your testimony, that this witness go forward, that you are alive. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And we are alive for such a time as this to proclaim that you are alive and that you love and that you want to use us. So, God, I pray that even now, as we go into this extended time of worship for a few, few moments, God, that you would mold our hearts around this truth. Help our hearts and our minds to be grateful, to be thankful for what you've given us in salvation in Jesus. Oh, the price that was paid for it. Help us to recognize it and to worship from a heart of gratefulness. Now is our chance, Lord, to respond in worship and in our lives for the gift you've given us of Jesus. And I pray that we would do that now your precious name.